I want to talk about the, the difference between income and growth in an investment portfolio and why that's so important to understand the difference and plan for the difference uh, as you grow older and your investment portfolio changes. So in, in thinking of a total return, say an investment makes 10%, a portion of that is going to be income and a portion of that is going to be growth. Now, income is the dollars that it produces in any given year of an investment. So think of like a bond, right? A bond, you invest a thousand bucks and maybe you get, you know, uh, you get 3%, you know, $30 per year on that bond or something like that, whatever it is. That's income. Growth is the appreciation in the price of an investment if somewhere else were to buy it. So if you buy a stock for $10, and it grows to $20, that's the growth of the stock. Now, most investments have a component of each, although some don't. So to go back to a stock, well, a stock has its growth, right? The price you pay if you were to buy it from your brokerage, but it also pays out a dividend each year, or at least you expect it to. So a stock may be at a 12% total return, maybe 10% of that is the growth, and then 2% of that is the dividend. So if you buy a stock for 100 bucks, maybe it gives you two bucks a year in a dividend and then it grows 8%, you know, uh, to, so it grows to $108. And you also get that $2. So the total return is 10, 8% comes from the growth and 2% comes from the dividend there. So, you know, your age is, is gonna depend on what portion of your portfolio you want to generate income and what portion you want to generate growth. And that could be different at different stages of your life. Now, personally, I'm not a big bond fan, so I don't subscribe to the idea that people should just, as they get older, go into bonds. Um, that is because, you know, number one, I, I, I don't think bonds are as risk-free as everyone thinks they are, um, you know, municipal bonds. I think there could be defaults. And I think at the end of the day with a bond, you're participating in simple interest where you give up your money and you just get that interest rate. And yeah, like once you get your interest, you could reinvest it so it can compound. But I just don't think you're getting adequate return for, for what you're putting up. Stocks, on the other hand, you know, if you invest like I subscribe to in, in index funds, you're getting growth, but you're also getting a, 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 a dividend income. And you know, candidly, even though the, the dividend rate of stocks is, is usually less than you would get in bonds, although not always, um, and it also depends on you know, the maturity of the bonds and things like that, the advantage of dividends as it comes to bonds, uh, dividends over bonds, is that dividends grow over time. A bond, you know, if you do 100 bucks, and it just depends on the interest rate. And then once that bond pays back at maturity and you reinvest it, it's still gonna just depend on whatever that, that interest rate is. You know, stocks, companies tend to increase their dividends over time and your dividends should increase over time as your portfolio grows. So I think there's a huge advantage there. And if, if I were, you know, older and sitting there saying, hey, I've gotta generate more income for my portfolio, my response wouldn't be to, you know, sell off my stocks and buy bonds to produce higher income because I think you're stealing from the future, you know, if you're doing that because you're just not going to get any growth. I'd much rather see someone convert their, you know, equity portfolio to, to real estate, um, you know, where you get a higher income, but you do get some growth as well. 
And that would be, you know, my preferred approach. I think we've we've always gone in as a society this stock versus bond model because, you know, most people invest with a with a financial advisor or a broker, and that's kind of what they've got to play with stocks and bonds. It's never a question of hey, let's convert stocks to real estate because they don't make any money that way. So that's why I think we've always had that dynamic, and I don't think that's the the, the best solution. I think if you're gonna you know, as you grow older, try and generate more income from a portfolio, you probably want to sit there and, uh, it, you know, transition your equities, not into bonds, but into some form of real estate. And you can hire a real estate manager to do the management for you. Um, but I just think it's a safer investment from the perspective of, you know, if a bond defaults, you lose everything or, or you have a significant haircut. You know, ask people who bought some foreign bonds, you know, over the years, Argentina being a good example. Real estate, real estate goes down in value, that's for sure. But, you know, it also, if you buy quality real estate, it also tends to come back. And you often don't notice it going down in volume because the rents don't necessarily change that quick. Um, also, you know, I just talked about what happens as you get older. How should your investment portfolio change? Well, how should you think about this when you're younger and you don't need the income right now? You know, one thing I've noticed with my real estate portfolio is I have two types of properties. There's ones in the Austin area where the, the income yield's not that high, candidly, but on the other hand, they grow at a much faster rate than my property in Arkansas, which the income yield is a lot higher, but I don't, it's not gonna grow very much over time. You know, I'm 41, um, I'm sorry, I'm 42, and I think, you know, to some extent I should be thinking about investing in assets that are gonna grow for grow more than produce income. And the reason is, is as my assets produce income, I do reinvest it, but there's definitely like some loss there in terms of I get the cash, I've gotta, you know, put it in, in my stock portfolio or, you know, save it and reinvest it in another property and there's times where I just have cash that's not earning anything and if I was invested in a higher growth real estate or I was invested you know solely in the stock market I, I would likely be my money money would earn more over time because it's put to work more so I think younger people do need to think about you know possibly putting more towards growth oriented assets because you just don't need the income and you know, not, not to say that the income I earn is a bad thing, you know, a few thousand dollars a month, but you know, at the same time, I, I could earn less income, but earn a higher growth potential. And then, you know, when I am in my sixties and seventies and thinking about living off my assets, that's when it's probably time to convert those into more income oriented assets. So, you know, overall, it's important to remember that there, in any investment, there's income and growth, and you have to think about, you know, what an investment can provide in terms of each, and also what you need at any given time. So that's an important consideration in investing. I wanted to discuss the Boston Consulting Group strategy palette. Now this comes from the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, and I think it's a really good way of thinking about the diverse needs of business in the context of strategy. You know, Boston Consulting Group, their, their kind of go-to strategy um, from the 70s is, uh, and, and, and before that, um, the, the experience curve is kind of like as you gain scale, you can drive down price, pass those along to the customer, protect market share. 
Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a classic strategy that also falls in line with kind of Michael Porter's five forces. Um, you know, those are classic strategies, but they aren't right for every business. And what the strategy palette goes into from, again, the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, is that there's really four main strategies for a healthy business and then a renewal strategy for times where the business is in a harsh environment and needs a course correction. So the four strategies are the classical strategy, which I kind of just alluded to, the visionary, the adaptive, and the shaping. And those are all a quadrant that depends on two, two spectrums or two axes. And one of those axes is the malleability of a business, meaning how, how much can you change your business environment? And then how predictable is your business environment? So imagine this like an XY graph. Imagine the Y axis is the unpredictable nature of your business and the x-axis is the malleability or how much can you change your business. So at the bottom left of the quadrant is businesses where they're totally predictable and you can't really change things. So that's where the classical strategy comes in. You know, lower your costs through economies of scale, pass that along to customers in, in exchange for more market share and grow that way. That's kind of the cash cow business that uh, Bruce Henderson of the Boston Consulting Group uh, constantly talks about. Um, and, that, and that's what you're looking to do. You're looking to be a market leader, you know, probably number one or number two in a market and maintain that market share through, through cost savings, part of which are passed along to your shareholders, but a lot of which are passed along to your customers. So what if, what if your market is unpredictable, but you can't really change things? So what about like a, a software consulting firm? Software changes all the time. It's totally unpredictable what direction it's going to go. If you're a software consultant, you, you can't predict at the beginning of 2021, what 2022, you know, what your consulting is going to look like. Well, it's an unpredictable environment and you can't really change that. So you need an adaptive strategy for unpredictable environments where you can't really, really change that. Um, and that's a, a strategy where you're going to have to come up with constant innovation in order to deal with the unpredictable nature of your, of your particular business line. Okay. So moving along, let's go to the bottom right of this four strategy quadrant I've been talking about. Let's say your business is predictable, but you can change it. Well, that's where a visionary might come in. Let's let's look at Steve Jobs. This is a great example. So, let's let's look at the iPod as it as it initially came in. It's pretty predictable that people are going to listen to music. What's visionary is getting all that music in one place on one player that you can't play on another player. CDs, you know, you could buy a Sony, you could buy a, a Panasonic, you could buy whatever. Your iPod, you're not buying any of those because it's all there. And then extend, extend that one step further to the iPhone. That's a visionary. It's a very predictable demand, pr predictable market, but you can change it. And that's where the visionary approach comes in. Well, what about the top right of the qu quadrant? 
where it's an extremely changeable environment and it's extremely unpredictable. So that's where you're gonna look to shape your, you're gonna look to a shaping strategy. So let's, let's look at the retail clothing environment. You think at the beginning of 2021, you have any idea what 2022 is gonna look like? No, but you can change it a lot through marketing, through buying, through through uh, buying appropriately, and that's kind of a retail clothing environment. It's extremely unpredictable, but you can change it a lot, and that's you're going to develop a shaping strategy. You're going to want to shape what you're going to sell through your marketing approach. You're going to want to act quickly in order to adapt to new styles as they come up, and that's kind of your 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 retail clothing, your shaping strategy. Well, the fifth kind of strategy that the BCG Color Boston Consulting Group Color Palette goes over is the, uh, the the renewal strategy. Excuse me. So, what if your business is just taking a nosedive and you're just kind of throwing up your hands to protect protect yourself? You're in a renewal strategy. You're going to cut costs significantly, focus on cash flow, and get yourself in a position where you can get back to one of these strategies and move from there. So that's the renewal strategy. It's a strategy in and of itself, but you can't stay in renewal forever. You can't cut costs forever to profitability. You can't manage cash flow forever to profitability. You'll eventually go out of business. So you do need to get back into one of those other four strategies. The classical strategy where it's predictable and you can't really change things. The visionary where it's predictable, but you can change things. The adaptive approach where it's an extremely unpredictable environment and you can't really change things. And then the, the, uh, the, the shaping environment where it's unpredictable and you can change things. So want to get from the renewal environment to one of those four as quickly as is feasible. So those are the five strategies under the Boston Consulting Group uh, strategy palette that are in the book. Your strategy needs a strategy. I think it's a real cool way of thinking at things and you know, depends on where you are in your business, but that's a good way of, of looking at, at strategy from a general perspective. I think it's a real interesting report about how a lot of Cadillac dealers, about 150, are exiting the relationship with Cadillac and accepting buyouts because they don't want to go with Cadillac's plans to go into the electric uh, car market. So Cadillac basically gave, came to them with a deal and said, look, you either need to invest in upgrades to sell electric Cadillac cars, uh, about 200 grand for most dealerships, or we're gonna give you a buyout. And apparently the buyouts range between 300 grand and a million dollars, so pretty significant. Um, and 17% of Cadillac's 880 US dealerships took that buyout. Now, a lot of them have other GMC brands, Cadillac's part of GMC, like Chevy Buick, GMC, etc. Um, but it still is interesting that that many decided to part ways with the Cadillac brand. And, you know, the article, which is a Wall Street Journal article, says that you know, a lot of the reason was that they just don't buy into the whole electric car um, that they're gonna take over. Um, and electric car sales are about 2% of the market right now, but you know, that is growing in certain markets. You know, California is moving towards electric only by I think 2027, although that's 
the current governor proposing to do something when he's no longer around and won't have to enforce it. So we'll see if that, that actually works out. But it's obviously, you know, a shot at a lot of the, the car manufacturers are looking at what Tesla is doing and saying, hey, that's the way things we think things are going. So, you know, we're going to dip our toes at least in that market and see if we can, you know, go ahead and, and make something happen. So it's interesting that Cadillac is saying to its dealers, you have to sell electric cars you know, and you have to make upgrades in order to do it. And what was interesting too is, you know, I didn't realize that uh, electric cars, it would really change the model at dealerships because where dealerships make a lot of their money is in the service and repairs and electric cars don't need the same. They don't, they don't have, I guess the same, you know, amount of, uh, amount of moving parts and, you know, they're, they're not going to, um, generate the same just general service and repair uh, bills that dealerships are used to. And they think there's other ways that de you know electric car dealerships are gonna make additional revenue probably in the, um, probably you know leasing out charging stations and things like that, but it's a completely different business model. And I think a lot of the, the car dealerships just said, you know, man, we wanna stay with the traditional gas model and we don't wanna kinda bet the house on, on getting into this and certainly not to the extent of doing 200 grand in upgrades and we're not going to sell that many cars in the near future. So, you know, very interesting. Remains to be seen if, if uh, electric cars take over the world, but Cadillac is certainly betting that, that they are um, because they're jumping into that space and, and it sounds like they're, they're forcing, trying to force their dealers to go along with it. So we'll see if that becomes more of a trend, um, you know, Tesla is certainly still a juggernaut in that in that market, but you know the big the big players are are starting to jump in, and they're betting that electric cars are going to be the wave of the future. And if, if they're right, you know they do have the scale right now. Whereas Tesla, you know Tesla has a great idea and they have a lot of demand, but you know they they aren't profitable at this point. So we'll we'll see if the big car companies, uh, you know if they are able to take over that electric market should it should it eventually come to fruition. So we'll see. But very interesting that a lot of Cadillac dealers are kind of exiting as it stands right now.